Good morning, Saints. No, I am not Warren Hendrickson, contrary to the bulletin. Thanks. I think that's good. I don't know. Is it? Uh, we, it, it seems like a good idea that when we have the family meeting and pot blessed meal that we have the shortest, pre, uh, shortest winded preacher um, <laughs> up. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we've been in this series about the attributes of God and it dawned on me as I was studying for this particular one that Jesus talked about a lot of the things that we've been talking about. He talked about the nature of God when he called God, uh, talked about God as a spirit. He talked about the holiness of God. He talked about the, the justice of God. Think about the, the parable of the guy that owned the vineyard and the, the tenants that, that killed his son. Um, he talked about the power of God when he said all things are possible. He talked about the omniscience of God when he talked about the God who sees in secret. He talked about the, the care of God. He talked about God as our provider. I mean, all these different things, so many of them that we've been talking about. But it also struck me that the one that he seemed to talk about the most, when in regards to God, the thing that Jesus talked about the most was that he is our father. Over and over and over. Read Matthew 6. Again and again throughout that passage, that entire chapter, your Father, your Heavenly Father. Read, read John chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. That night before he goes to the cross, he's talking to his disciples and then he's praying. And again and again, Father, Father, you hear it over and over and over. And it's not only Jesus, as though only Jesus wouldn't be enough, but it's not only Jesus in the New Testament that does that, read the, read the epistles. The, the writers of those letters seem to have gotten it. Just one uh, quick example, Galatians 1.3, Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I mean, that's a consistent theme for Paul, but it's also the same for, for, for Peter and for John. So we're going to talk today about the fatherhood of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider what you would speak to us, we are inviting you today to, to cause us to see differently. Lord, let us, let us encounter your fatherhood, not just know about it, but know you as Father here today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It was 30 years ago that an earthquake devastated the northwest corner of Armenia, now, in case you don't know, Armenia is the smallest of the former Soviet republics. Uh, it's just east of Turkey and just north of Iran. So this 1988 earthquake, estimates are that 25,000 people lost their lives as a result of this earthquake. It was huge. And in one small community, there was a father who right after the quake was very concerned and he went to the school where his son attended and what he found there was devastation. The entire school was flattened. And it didn't look too hopeful, but he didn't let that deter him because he had told his son Armand, no matter what, I'll always be there for you when you need me. So even though his chances looked pretty slim, he started digging through the rubble. There were other parents that were there. They were like, don't even bother. They're, they're, they're crying. They're staring hopelessly off into space. They don't think there's any chance that anybody survived. But this guy tells them, no, I made a promise to my son that I'd be there for him any time that he'd need me. So I must continue to dig. And so he did. Nobody helped him. 
He just worked all by himself, hour after hour after hour. 12 hours of digging. 24 hours of digging. A day and a half, 36 hours of digging through this rubble. And finally, the 38th hour, he removed a particularly large piece of debris there and he heard voices. And he called, Armand! And he heard the voice call back, Dad, it's me, Armand. And you can imagine the excitement of that father. But then right after that, he heard his son say this, I told the other kids not to worry. I told them that if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you saved me, they'd be saved too. You promised you'd always be there for me, Dad. You did it. It was just moments later that that father is pulling his son and 13 other frightened, hungry, thirsty children out of that debris. And when the townspeople celebrated what he had done, he said, I promised my son, no matter what, I'll be there for you. What a great story. But as heartwarming as that story is, the good news is that you have a father that's even more amazing. Your heavenly father is far more reliable. He never grows weary. He has all the power in the universe at his disposal and he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. That's your father. You know, when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray, he said, pray along these lines, our father who art in heaven. You know, there are a few times in the Old Testament when the idea of God as Father is kind of alluded to, but it wasn't until Jesus visibly showed up here on earth that that idea came rushing to the forefront. Over and over when Jesus prayed, he's praying to his Father. When he's talking to his, his followers about God, he referred to him as your heavenly Father. When he taught his disciples to pray, our Father, Father, over and over and over. Any any depth of intimacy with God in the Old Testament is rare, but it's all over the New Testament. In New Testament terms, it's foundational to our relationship with God. In fact, this teaching is so strong in the New Testament that some theologians will tell you that being able to call God Father is what the, the essential message of the New Testament is all about. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, said this, you sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. The, the Scottish theologian and author Sinclair Ferguson said this, you cannot open the pages of the New Testament without realizing that one of the things that makes it so new, as in New Testament, in every way, is that here men and women call God Father. You, just, you, you know the passages. Let me just give you a few quick examples. Jesus talking to Mary Magdalene in John 20. Go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 2 Corinthians 6. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. John 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're children of God. He's our father. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And you and I both know that's just a few. Again and again and again, we hear about father. But we need to also recognize that this idea of father can be difficult to understand for us. Now, don't misunderstand. I know that we, uh, 
many of us here knew and had a relationship with our earthly father, and we learned something about fatherhood from that relationship. I get that, all right? But suppose you and I go to India, and we go to an orphanage there, and this is not a Christian orphanage. This is just a, a state-run institution. And so whereas in a Christian orphanage that you and I might think of, the people who work there would be compelled by the love of Christ to, to take care of those people because that's their heart. That's what they, they want to do what, what God wants them to do. They're loving these kids. In this institution, it's not like that. The workers are simply workers. They're just there getting paid for what they're doing. Oh, they'll take care of the kids. They'll give them food and shelter. They'll even educate them. But basically, it's just a job. And so you and I go to this orphanage. And while we're there, we meet a young man. I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years old. He has spent his entire life in this orphanage. He was rescued off the street as an infant. He would have been abandoned. And so the only life he's ever known has been in this institution with these people who are taking care of him, and that's it. Well, they've given him food, they've given him shelter, but that's all he's known. And so you and I start talking to him about a father who loves him. What do those words even mean to somebody like that? I mean, that, that's just totally foreign language to him. Now, I realize that's an extreme case, but I think that you and I are in much the same boat, honestly. No matter how godly an earthly father we might have had, we still didn't get the full picture. He f still fell way short of the heavenly father. If we think we can understand the love of the father simply by our earthly father, we're wrong. Our heavenly father is so superior in every single way that there's no comparison. It's not even close. You know, if, if, if after talking to that boy in India about the ideas of love and father, if he starts to think that he's beginning to understand those ideas, I think that's the place that you and I are at in understanding our heavenly father. And don't misunderstand. We can and we should learn things about our heavenly father from our earthly father. It's, it's, it's God's design. It's part of his plan. But the most godly earthly father that you can imagine still falls way short of the heavenly father. He, he the, the, the most godly earthly father that ever lived is only a mere shadow of the heavenly father. And that's the best. And I know that some here didn't have the best. I know that there are some here who the smell of alcohol reminds you of your father. There are others who your father did things to you that he should have never done. In his book, Passion for Jesus, Mike Bickle describes various types of, of earthly fathers who may have, have warped our view of God as father. And, and one of the reasons that I'm sharing these with you is, is that there may be some issues in your life that you need to identify in order to get past them. The distant or passive father. The emotional distant or passive father expresses his affections in a minimal way. He assumes you know he loves you, but he rarely speaks it. However, you don't know he sees or feels your pain or joy. When something wonderful or tragic happens, the passive father just nods his head. You begin to believe that God is like that as well. He does not feel your pain or share your joy. He has little affections to express to you. You may reap strong emotional consequences if you are raised by this kind of father. 
the authoritarian father. The authoritarian father intervenes to stop what you are doing. He hands out lists of do's and don'ts. He interrupts you and says no to things that are important to you. Your heart is quenched by this. This kind of father does not honor your individuality. He is not interested in your desires or goals, only his own. He wants no partnership or deep intimacy with you, but only to be obeyed. The abusive father. Abusive fathers inflict pain on their children deliberately, hurting them emotionally, mentally, physically, and sometimes sexually. There is no greater torment in life than the torment of the ha- at the hands of an abusive father. It not only destroys the child's natural emotions, but it deeply, deeply shapes his relationship with God. The absent father. The fourth type of father is one who is totally absent. Maybe he is the father you never knew, perhaps even dying before you were born. He is not like the passive father who is there yet does not communicate. He simply is never there. Therefore, he never intervenes to help you in times of trouble. You feel totally abandoned and neglected by your earthly father. This hinders your ability to experience the presence of your heavenly father. And then lastly, the accusing father. The fifth father is the most common example. He is the accusing father. He proclaims to love you with his whole heart, but he judges you continually at every failure. In his mind, he is trying to motivate you to do right. He thinks if he points out your failures, you will be motivated to try harder next time. He rarely shows you affection or affirms you. If you grew up with this type of father, you will have great difficulty understanding the love of your heavenly father because you will think God is always accusing you. You know, I'm not always honestly a big fan of Mike Bickle's teaching, but he nailed it on these. And I'll be honest, as I was reading through these, I saw my dad in more than one of them, but more scarily to me, I saw me in more than one of these. And the truth is that in the Bible, there are very, very few examples of really good fatherhood. There are very few who did it really well from beginning to end. That almost seems like the exception, not the rule in Scripture. But the other side of that coin is that regardless of those less than stellar fathers, there are so many in Scripture who did amazing things regardless of what their father did because God worked in their heart and their life. And let me say this, not having a perfect father doesn't mean that you can't recognize and be nurtured by your heavenly father. You can because he is with you. He wants to be the real father to you. Scott Goodwill, who was here for our conference back in March, made a a great statement a while back. He said this, when we lack a sense of who we are, a lot of times it can be because we're no longer relating to God as Father. And it's true. There is something of, of fatherhood that needs to be restored. Now, of course, Father isn't all that God is to us. There's lots of things that we've been talking about, all right? But the word that he picked to describe himself the most in the New Testament is Father. And I think that's a big deal. I mean, think about it. He's God. He could be anything he wanted to us. You know, if God said, I'm going to be a polar bear to you, he could do it. I mean, he's God, right? But the word that he picked, the, the idea that he tried to get across is that he wants to be a father to us. And God isn't just a, a representation of a father, not just some idea of a father. He is a father. He is the father. He's the one who is true and faithful and merciful and kind and loving and compassionate and just and caring. 
and on and on and on. You've heard me talk about my friend John Chevalier in the past. He is a worship leader in Sonoma County, California. John has lived most of his adult life in California, but he grew up in New York, and he had a great father. And when his children were fairly young, John got a call from his mom in New York saying that he needed to go home because his father wasn't doing well. So he went home, flew home to New York, and he said it was really disappointing because his father really didn't recognize him at all. So rather than focus in on that time there, John chose to remember the great times that his father spent with him when he was a kid, like the time he took him to a baseball game at Shea Stadium and there was a rain delay and somehow his dad finagled it to get him into the, the bullpen and meet his favorite player. Or the time his dad was teaching him to fix the, the motor on the boat. They used to go fishing a lot. They both loved it. And John, as a little kid, accidentally dropped the wrench into the lake. Dad spent quite a bit of time trying to get that wrench out of the lake. Said John, John said his dad never chided him about dropping it. Said he just had these great memories of his father from when he was a kid. And John was there for probably a week or so and finally had to go back home to California and his father was still with them. But two months later, John and his family were on vacation in Southern California visiting his wife's family and one evening, for whatever reason, he was by himself driving in their car, going back to where they were staying. And he said, all of a sudden, he heard a voice that was just as audible as me talking right now. And it said, I am your father. And then he heard it again. I am your father. He said there was an overwhelming sense of the presence of God there, and he was just crying. He knew that regardless of what happened with his earthly father, that he had a heavenly father that was taking care of him, was there for him. It was the very next morning that he got a call from his mother saying that his dad had passed away. You know, I think, honestly, that John's experience should seem somewhat normal to us. And don't misunderstand, I'm not saying we should all hear an audible voice, but we should have an experience of our heavenly Father. Let, let me explain what I'm talking about. I don't know any Christian anywhere who would deny the fact that the God is their Father. If I came to you and said, is God your Father? You would say, yes, absolutely. And if I asked you why, you would say, because that's what the Bible says. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You guys know me well enough that I'm gonna base what I say on Scripture, all right? And I want us to do that. We need to be founded on His Word. But at the same time, do you really know him as your father? See, my relationship with my kids isn't about a doctrine. I know that's hard to believe, Philip, right? If, if one day you heard David talking to me and David said, Dad, I know based on the sacred writings that the truth is that you are my father, you'd think, that's pretty weird, isn't it? Right? I mean, we, and the reason that we would think that's weird is because we know inherently that a true father-son relationship isn't built on doctrine, it's built on 
relationship. It's built on experience. It's not knowing about, it's actually knowing. Let, let, me, let me hit this from a different angle. I want you to think back to the, the prayer that the Apostle Paul, Paul prays in Ephesians 3. This isn't in your notes, sorry. I realized last night that um, I wasn't expressing this well, and so I wanted to come up with another way to do it. If you remember, Paul prays for his readers that he wants them to comprehend the love or the, 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 the length and height and depth and width of the love of God. That word comprehend is just what it sounds like. It's a mental word. It's a, a cognitive thing going on. It's a thinking word, comprehend. That's what he's saying there, okay? But it goes on to say that I want you to know the love of Christ just after that. And that's a very different word. That's an experiential word. In fact, the, the New Living Translation translates it like this. May you experience the love of Christ though it is too great to fully understand. May you experience the love of Christ. See, God wants us to know cognitively that he, he loves us, that he's our father, but he wants it to go beyond that. He wants us to experience the fact that he is our father. Again, one of the biggest changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament is the way that we relate to God. In the Old Testament, it was, it was God Almighty. He is the, the Lord. He's the creator. And then along comes Jesus, and he's referring to him as Father. Radically different. Most Old Testament people apparently never knew that level of intimacy with God. So one of the things I think that we as New Testament believers need to hang on to is that fathering of God. That should be primary in our lives that we know him as Father. In fact, the, the New Testament introduces us to a word to, that to me is amazing. It's a it's an intimate word. It's an endearing term. You all know it, Abba. Jesus, the first time that we see that word used in the New Testament is in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. He knows what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross the next day. He knows what's about to go on here. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but yet what you will. Abba was the most intimate word that people in that culture could use for father. It's actually a, an informal word that would never be used in a public setting. You know, today in our culture, we use the word daddy pretty regularly, but in that day and age, uh, it would be disrespectful to use the word Abba in that kind of a, a setting. You know, when I was a kid, if, if I were to introduce my father to somebody, I would say, this is my father be very formal kind of thing, right? But when I went home, you know what? I'd run and jump into his arms and I'd call him daddy. Just totally different. So when Jesus uses that word Abba, and later on Paul suggests that we ought to use it, Romans 8, Galatians 4, the Lord is telling us that our relationship with him is not supposed to be characterized by some kind of formality, but true intimacy, true love. The writer named Joachim Jeremiah, he wrote a book called The Prayers of Jesus. He said this, to the Jewish mind, it would have been disrespectful and therefore inconceivable to address God with this familiar word. For Jesus to venture to take this step was something new and unheard of. He spoke to God like a child to its father, simply, inwardly, confidently. Jesus' use of Abba in addressing God reveals the heart of his relationship with God. Th think about it this way. Stephen's not here this morning. My son Stephen's not here this morning. I can pick on him. If, if I'm sitting in our family room 
and he were to come and kneel down in front of me and say, oh, my father on the big couch, you are the most magnificent father in all the world. I'd be going, what are you talking about? Right? Because true father-son relationship isn't based on that kind of formality. There's, a, there's a, 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 an intimacy that's involved there that we're not picking up on in what he would have said right there. Are you with me? When Jesus talks about his father, when he says, your heavenly father, there's a, there's a familiarity that's clear in that term. And I'm not talking about being disrespectful. The, 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 the fear of God produces respect and even honor. Those things, I think, should be evident in our lives. But if you think about it, those things are evident even in a a right, biblical, godly, earthly father-son relationship. There is an honor and a respect even in the midst of the familiarity and the intimacy. You following what I'm saying here? But this idea of Abba, I think it demonstrates a, a, a confidence in daddy on another level. There's a sense of intimacy that, that shows that we understand that we are accepted by him. It's the, the warm, caring term. It's the hold you in his arms kind of term. It's the place of refuge. Again, it's the, it's the word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knows he's about to go to the cross, when, when everything else is going wrong. Father, I know I can still trust you. That's the kind of relationship that he wants us to have with him. Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians, he said, there, there is more eloquence in that word, Abba Father, than all the orations of Demosthenes and Cicero put together. Now, in case you don't know, those guys are renowned orators in history. And so for Luther to make that statement, that's pretty strong. But I think he's right. When we know God as Abba, as Daddy God, there's a, a confidence, a trust, dare I say, a faith that we won't have, that we can't have in a strictly formal relationship. John Calvin pointed out that the first title given to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the spirit of adoption. Romans 8.15, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. We've been adopted into his family. We've been brought in, intentionally brought into the family of God. We're his children. He's our father. Section of scripture goes on to say, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He is truly our father by his choice. He's the one that made it happen. Now, all of this doesn't mean that he's always gonna be sugary sweet with us, all right? Hebrews 12, six, it says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You know, Pastor Nick used to say that God has a woodshed. And it's true. Charles Spurgeon explained this verse like this. He said, picture two, two Christian families. Each of them have an adult son. And in each of those families, the adult son leaves home and goes to another country to live, to work. But after a time, each of the families gets word that their son has converted to a different religion. And so one of the father's response is righteous anger. He's upset 
He can't believe that his son has been duped into believing wrongly. And so he makes plans to do anything that he can to help his son see the error of what's going on here. Okay, the other father, his response is, well, if that's gonna help him get along better over there, if it's gonna help him make more money, that's fine. Now, which of those two loves his son more? Yeah. See, your heavenly father could be complacent and just let you get away with anything that you want to, but he doesn't because you're his son, you're his child. He loves you. Let me share a story with you that I came across recently. It's a modern retelling of Jesus' parable about the wayward son. And by the way, I didn't write this. I just edited it quite a bit. Jenny grew up in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. In her early teenage years, she fell into a pattern of battling her parents. As a result, they didn't react well when she came home with several different piercings. They were furious when she stayed out all night without so much as a phone call to tell them where she was. Her friends weren't exactly her parents' first choice. One night, Jenny and her folks had a huge fight. I hate you, she screamed at her father as she slammed the door to her bedroom. That night, she acted on a plan that had been forming for some time. Once everyone had gone to sleep, she got dressed, packed a bag, and went into the kitchen. She found her mom's purse sitting on a chair. She took credit cards, cash, and her debit card. Jenny walked a half mile to the bus terminal and headed for St. Louis. When she got there, she waited right outside the door of a bank so she could be the first person through the door that morning. She forged her mother's signature and withdrew the $12,000 that she knew her parents had in their investment account. She then found herself a place to live, and it wasn't long before Jenny was enjoying the high life. A new group of friends, plenty of booze, late nights, sleep all day, no school, no parents hassling her, let alone her experiments with sex and drugs. It didn't take long till the $12,000 was gone and the credit cards were canceled. Back home, her, her parents were frantic. Her mom had to start packing shelves at night to pay off the credit card debt and the $12,000 set aside for her sister's college education was gone. Of course, the police were notified. The streets were searched, first Poplar Bluff, then a wider area, but nothing. Her parents didn't know what had happened, but they feared the worst. Meanwhile, on the streets of St. Louis, things weren't going too well. Jenny was soon addicted to heroin, and the money she stole didn't go nearly as far as she guessed it might, especially after the credit cards were no longer being accepted. She moved into a squalid neighborhood and began selling herself to men. One day, as she was walking down the street, Jenny happened to see a poster on a telephone pole. The headline asked, Have you seen this girl? Below that heading was a picture of her, well, at least as she used to look. The poster had her parents' phone number on it and asked for anyone with information to call. Jenny took the poster down, carefully folded it up, and put it in her pocket. The months passed, and then a few years. Jenny had been careless one too many times. At first, she wrote off her sickness as just another bout of flu, but the illness persisted. She went to the free clinic and found out that she had contracted hepatitis C and HIV. Not even a pimp wanted anything to do with her now. That night, she sat lonely, tired, and hungry in a corner of a room in the house she shared with who knows how many other people. She pulled out the poster she rescued from that telephone pole. She had kept it with her for the last few years. She thought back to her previous life as a typical schoolgirl in a middle-class Poplar Bluff family. It triggered memories, like the famous family water fight one steaming summer day when she was 12, and of crazy moments dancing together, of her sister's comforting arms when she broke up with Reggie, 
God, why did I leave, she said to herself. Even the family mutt lives better than I do. She started sobbing. and She knew that more than anything, she wanted to go home. Three straight phone calls, three connections with the answering machine. She hung up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she said, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus to Poplar Bluff. I'll be in the bus terminal there tomorrow about midnight. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just keep going. The next day on the bus, Jenny thought about all the flaws in her plan. What, what if mom and dad were out and missed the message? And what are they going to do if they heard it anyway? After all, it's been years and they hadn't heard a word from her in all that time. They probably didn't even care about her by now. And even if they did, how are they going to react when they discover I'm a junkie with AIDS, she wondered. If they do show up, what on earth am I going to say? The bus pulled into the Poplar Bluff station at 10 minutes past midnight. She heard the hiss of the brakes as it came to a stop. Jenny's heart was pounding. This is it. Oh well, get ready for nothing, she said to herself. Jenny stepped out of the bus, not knowing what to expect. She looked to her right and saw a mostly empty parking lot, but before she could look the other direction, she heard someone call her name. Jenny! Her head whipped around. And there was her dad holding a sign that said, Welcome home. The next thing she knew, her dad was running toward her at full speed with tears streaming down his face and arms wide open. Jenny couldn't move. Her father grabbed her with such force that it almost knocked her over. Dad, I'm, I'm so sorry. I know I really... Hush, child. Forget the apologies. All I care about is that you're home. I just want to hold you. There's a big party waiting back at home and everyone's there waiting. Your mom, your sister, your grandmother, aunts and uncles, cousins, everyone but he seemed to be in no rush to get there. He just held Jenny close and told her over and over, I love you. I love you. Luke 15, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I don't believe it was accidental that Jesus chose those words a long way off, ran to him, embraced him, kissed him, because that's the love of a father. Yes, he is also our creator. He's the almighty one. He's the one who knows and sees everything. Yes, he is just, but he is our loving father. He is the one who cares more for you than you can possibly begin to imagine. And this day, he wants you to know him anew as father. As the one who wants to be in your life as father, as caring for you in a way no one else possibly can. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that indeed you do care about us so very richly that you reached out and intentionally drew us into your family to be your children and for you to be our father. Lord, thank you. May we know more and more, not just in our heads, but in our experience. May we know you as Father. 
more and more day by day. Amen.